from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. It's our first time in gopher country visiting the University of Minnesota as we continue our 2023 Beck's U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow. And here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Decades of work all to create an apple tasting experience you'll never forget. The one that probably moved us uh, to the forefront uh, locally, nationally, and internationally was Honeycrisp. And that really broke new ground. We introduced that in 1991. University of Minnesota is home to one of the most popular apple varieties today, and it's all credit the decades of taste tests and work. The most common grain marketing mistakes. You've got a lot of producers putting corn and soybeans in the bin. They're waiting for higher prices. And I ask them, do you have an exit plan? Tackling the truths and some myths in our marketing roundtable. Is red seaweed the recipe to reducing methane emissions in cattle? And we're feeding it to cows uh, to reduce uh, methane emissions. And we hope to see uh, at least a 40 to 50% reduction in methane of dairy cows. And in John's world. The new weight loss drugs. The 2023 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from the University of Minnesota is brought to you exclusively by Bex. From farmer's first pass in the field to the final one at harvest, it's a game plan rooted in faith and belief. Bex Hybrids is with you every turn because both on and off the field, we're all farmers at heart. See why at BexHybrids.com. President Biden announcing the administration will invest $5 billion in agriculture in rural communities. The president was joined by Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack in Northfield, Minnesota. While the announcement made it seem like the $5 billion is in new investments, it's not. Instead, it's previously announced funding passed through the infrastructure and inflation reduction bills. My plan is about investing in rural America. It's about something else as well. It's about restoring pride in the rural, to rural communities that have been left behind for far too long. In addition to the $1.7 billion to go toward climate smart agricultural practices, $1 billion is to expand independent meat processing capacity, $274 million to expand rural high-speed internet, and $145 million to increase access to renewable energy. The I-80 Harvest Tour on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Case IH. The Farmall has been an iconic partner on the farm for generations. Come celebrate a century of Farmall, the one for all with us at farmall100.com. And by AGI. At AGI, we spend a lot of time focused on product details, making sure you can store your grain how you need to and move it when you need to. Learn more at aggrowth.com. Well, the corn harvest phase has been falling behind in Indiana, with farmers 56% done on corn, nearly 10 points behind average. Soybean harvest is more in line with normal and stands at 79% complete. USDA is estimating statewide yields for both corn and soybeans in Indiana will be above 2022. And so far, harvest results are confirming that trend. Near Lafayette, Chuck Shelby planted in the dust and dry conditions continued through the early summer before the pattern changed. And that has produced some better results this fall. We didn't have a very good crop last year here in Indiana, this part of it. So we're doing uh, much better this year, probably above average for both corn and beans. He says soybeans will average in the low 70s on his farm, 
with corn yields anywhere from 250 to 260 after drying. However, corn harvest has been slow as the crop died down prematurely and corn moisture levels are stuck between 18 to 20 percent. That's forcing farmers to dry the crop, which causes bottleneck. Avian influenza is starting to become a problem yet again. Cases of highly pathogenic avian influenza are now surging at U.S. turkey farms. USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service confirming HPAI in 24 commercial turkey farms across 19 counties in five states. That includes here in Minnesota, South Dakota, Utah, Iowa, and California. 18 of the 19 counties had already confirmed infections during the summer of 2023, and experts say that suggests the potential for the virus to become endemic in certain areas. As a response to the outbreaks, well, 967,000 turkeys have been culled. General Motors and the United Auto Workers Union have reached a tentative contract agreement. It's hoped it will end a six-week-old strike against Detroit automakers. The agreement follows the pattern set with Ford last week and Jeep maker Stellantis over the weekend. It's reported the deals will last four years and eight months and include a 25% general pay raise and cost of living adjustment. Under investigation right now in western Iowa, the deaths of a father and son on a farm. It happened in Hornick following a standoff with police. The Woodbury County Sheriff's Office saying Sunday night they received a call from a man reporting his son was shooting at him. Affiliate KTIV sharing this video. Deputies responded to the scenes and learned the suspect was still there in a white pickup truck. They were able to make contact with him and they say he told them there would be no peaceful resolution and they say he made threats towards law enforcement. Early in the morning, investigators say the suspect fired shots at them. Police then returned fire, striking him. Medical personnel attempted to save his life, but he was pronounced dead at the scene. He's been identified as 44-year-old Walter Solzberger. The father, 72-year-old Todd Solzberger, was pronounced dead as well. The exact cause of Todd's death has not been released yet, but it's being called a homicide. All right, that's it for the news. Some of our viewers seeing the first snow of the season this week. Others now seeing a big warm-up. We'll have a check of your forecast coming up next. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. With a reinforced frame, the 430 bushel SW3243 heavy-duty manure spreader is designed to be durable. The spreader features a standard upper beater and fiberglass reinforced plywood sides for easy cleaning and minimal freeze-up. Find out more at the H&S website. Time now for a check of weather. Meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht joining us now. Matt, some of our viewers seeing the first snow of the season this week, and there are traces of it still here in Minnesota. It was a white Halloween for parts of Minnesota this year. I'm telling you, I am not ready for this cold. <laughs> That's what it was, wasn't it? It was, it was a white Halloween. Most times we're looking at the percentages of having a white Christmas, but uh, we did not look at the percentages of a white Halloween across the United States. Not time you were mentioning that you're sick and tired or not ready, I should say, for the cold. Check out the map. This is the temperature outlook. November 7th through the 11th, a lot more red, orange, and yellow on this map than uh, the blue. Remember last week when we talked, it was completely flipped. Nearly two-thirds of the United States was in the blue. So we're expecting this pattern to kind of shift. Uh, there's going to be uh, a shallow, uh, the jet stream is going to be pretty shallow in and across the United States. And that's why south of the jet stream is where we see some of the uh, more significant warm-up. But not a lot of storm systems uh, coming through. So when you look at the precipitation outlook,
And while there is some green, we're just off of the normal part on this legend. We really don't get back into the wetter than normal category unless you're looking back into parts of Texas and then over on the West Coast as well, Seattle, Portland, and also into California. So not only is it looking warm into next week for a good portion of the nation, uh, but not a lot of storm systems coming through either. And obviously, if we're expected to be above average with temperatures, anything that comes down would be in the form of rain. All right, let's take a look at what's going on with that jet stream. So Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, that zonal flow shows up. Uh, when we get into this kind of situation, uh, the zonal flow, what we're going to be watching for is some kind of kicker. And actually, you can trace some of these kickers all the way back across the Pacific Ocean over near Japan. You start to see things show up there uh, that in about a 7 to 10 day period ends up showing up here as we try and follow uh, those waves and also follow uh, that weather forecast. So this is jet stream coming up on Monday. We stay zonal. The next kind of kicker or trough starts to come in towards the tail end of the work week and the weekend. Any energy that tries to come through the jet stream to bring not only a pocket of cold air to the United States, but also any kind of snow or rain chances, well, that energy is going to have to go up and over this ridge of high pressure based down here into the southeast. So pretty quiet pattern to start the work week, make it a few clipper systems. Otherwise, we're going to be watching our next system back out here towards the west and also some cooler air trying to come in across the Midwest going into the weekend. Thanks, Matt. Well, this time of year, what are some common marketing mistakes? That's exactly what we'll find out next with our marketing roundtables from right here at the University of Minnesota. Welcome back to the University of Minnesota on this brisk, beautiful morning. Excited to be here. We have a lot to cover this weekend, especially with our economists and our marketing roundtable. When we look at Minnesota, Bob, you know, the production picture, when we were here for crop tour at the, at, at the middle of August, drought, heat, I mean, there was a lot of challenges. But now as farmers getting are getting into the field, what does the production picture look like here? Yeah, I think what we've seen around the state is certainly the central part of the state, southeast, was most heavily hit with the drought. But I think we've gotten some surprisingly good numbers in corn, better than, we, than most producers expected. There's certainly, you know, areas that were hit that are going to see much lower production. On the soybean side, I don't think we're going to see quite, quite the levels that we have in the past. Uh, USDA has got us pegged for right around 50 bushel per acre this year. I think we're going to be at that or a little below by the time we get things added up in Minnesota. How spotty has it been from farm to, I mean, not even county to county, but farm to farm? Uh, that's really been an issue this year. Uh, I also farmed down in southwestern Minnesota. You know, I had below average yields in my, my operation this year. You go 10 miles north, they picked up a couple of timely thunderstorms, and they've got great yields going. So it really is spotty in terms of, you know, we saw a big stretch of drought, but there's some farms in that area that still did very well. Right now, I mean, it, it, you know, as farmers as they're harvesting, that's what they're focused on, not as much marketing plans. But when you're talking to farmers, what are some key grain marketing mistakes that you see farmers make year to year? Well, I'm talking, I talk about five mistakes. One of them really isn't relevant right now, but the, this reluctance towards pre-harvest pricing, pricing before harvest. And a lot of producers took some good advantage this last summer during the big rallies to get something done, and they're in a good position. Another mistake, uh, uh, I teach some courses, and my students here will know I talk about basis and carry and not understanding basis, not under, not, not looking around at basis, seeing 
how that can add a nickel or 10 cents uh, to their game. The third mistake I like to talk about is relevant today because you've got a lot of producers putting corn and soybeans in the bin. They're waiting for higher prices. And I ask them, do, do you have an exit plan? What, what price are you waiting for? What time are you waiting for? And of course, many of them don't know. They're just waiting for a higher price. The final one is uh, mysterious stuff about carrying charges. The price difference between different uh, futures contracts. And I will note that over the last um, four or five months as this market has collapsed, it's not just lower prices. We've gone from inverted markets in grains to sizable carries. First time we've seen carries in three years. Well, it seems like Goldie Gopher agrees with you on all of those points, so much so that what you were saying made their head turn. I mean, if you didn't, if you didn't see that behind you. But Dean, when you look at some of the challenges, I mean, we've, we talked about, you know, production challenges year to year, grain marketing challenges year to year. But what are some of those challenges in agriculture you're looking at over the next five to 10 years that you're preparing students for today? Yeah, I really think, you know, this conversation that Bob was mentioning and, and Ed about uh, yields this year is, is really remarkable. So you think about the dry weather we had and, you know, credit to both our agronomics teams and crop genetics and the work that some of our seed uh, providers do, like Bex, for example. Um, we have crops in the southeastern part of Minnesota literally didn't have rain for two months and yields are down just slightly. So those challenges are, I think we're going to see, you know, just think about, we hear a lot about climate change and, and whether it's weather variation and so on in this. You know, how do we adapt our agronomic systems to take advantage of these limited circumstances? And that's what we're doing is building resiliency into our systems. And that goes from the production side of it all the way through to our food systems. Dean, quick question. Did you pay him to, to, to make this sign. Did you see this sign? <laughs> I did not see that sign, but I'm assuming- One guy with an arrow. I thought it said most awesome D in the world, but I'll take that well, too. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing, read it however you want. First, we need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on US Farm Report. Americans have a new option for weight loss, but what does it mean for the food we produce? Here's John Phipps. Pharmaceutical companies have high hopes for a new category of weight loss drugs known as GLP-1 drugs. Basically, when administered monthly, they alter the body's production of hormones that control the brain's perception of satiety, the sense of being full. They have become a sensation in the medical industry for coping with obesity and diabetes and a challenge to the food industry and its investors. The two big brands currently are Ozempic and Wegovy. While they have been through years of testing, like all new pharmaceuticals, ongoing research shows clear evidence of their effectiveness. I have a friend for whom this therapy has been a life changer. GLP-1 drugs rose to public awareness recently when a Walmart executive reported that shoppers using such drugs were buying less food. While the fact that Walmart can track this is pretty creepy to me, the statement rippled through the whole food industry. These drugs seem to work better with fewer side effects than bariatric surgery or weight loss programs. The impact on farmers could be subtle and substantial, 
as more and cheaper versions of these drugs are released in the next few months. For example, here is what one industry analyst found. The blue bars are GLP-1 buyer food volume changes. It shows good news for yogurt manufacturers, and that's about all the good stuff. Produce, dairy, meat, and bread are examples of food groups that see decreased GLP-1 consumer demand. The biggest loser, so to speak, is the snack food industry. But, as they say, wait, there's more. While not fully understood why, GLP-1 drugs have been used enough to show they reduce other cravings from alcohol to nicotine. They can improve liver, heart, and kidney function as well. Investors have noticed and share prices for products and services from dialysis to addiction treatment to cholesterol medicines have been hammered by the potential of these drugs. The effect for farmers will be felt first, probably, by grain producers, and then, it, as it works through the food chain, the protein and produce sectors. Regardless of these economics and the impact on the food system, drugs like Ozempic appear to be a huge advancement for human health and a big and deserved win for the global pharmaceutical industry. Thanks, John. Well, for young tractor enthusiasts, this next one may be for you. It's a farmall cub in Tractor Tales next. Tractor Tales on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Farmall, 100 years of milestones, community, and memories. Since 1923, it's been the one for all. Celebrate with Case IH at farmall100.com. Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we've got a farmall cub that gets lots of attention from young tractor enthusiasts. What we got here is a 1949 cub that I rescued from a, from a field about 15 years ago. I used to drive one of these when I was in high school working for the, the city schools with a mower under it. So I had a lot of good memories about cubs. Put it together, restored it. It was in pretty bad shape. It was way worse shape than anything I'd ever tackled. But uh, turned out good and uh, had used it, you know, played with it, showed it, used it around here, got a blade for it and a plow and that sort of thing. And so it was, it was useful and, and I still use it for that kind of stuff here. I saw a show, a guy at a show that had a platform built on the back of his and he used it just to haul uh, stuff around the show, his, uh, his uh, lunch basket <laughs> and that sort of thing. And that's kind of cool. And I realized that with that platform back there, I could stand on the back of it and I could reach over a kid and I could steer it if I had to. I could hit the throttle, I could hit the gear shift, and I could kill it with a kill switch that I mounted behind the seat. So when I take it to shows, I take it, I put the platform on it and we announce uh, uh, tractor driving lessons are open and uh, kids come over, grandmas, kids, you name it. And I have one solid rule that prevents fights. And that is the kid gets on the seat. If he can set his rear in the seat and, and take his uh, left foot and push the clutch down all the way, you're qualified. I'll have it running, slow idle, put it in low, with the kid's foot all the way down on the clutch then say, okay, let up easy, let up easy. And some do and some don't. But in this thing in low gear, 
it doesn't matter. I've never been thrown off the back by that. And then let them drive it. Uh, they can steer it. Uh, they can go anywhere they want to. And I can always grab the steering wheel and, and adjust it if I have to. I can kill it if they're about to run over grandma, but kids love it. And they'll come back to our show year after year to come back and drive the tractor. Thanks, Greg. Well, from protecting cereal crops from devastating diseases to adding a touch of seaweed to dairy cattle feed that could reduce methane emissions by up to half. There is so much research happening today on the University of Minnesota campus, and we're set to uncover some of it next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. In fields across Minnesota, it's not just corn and soybeans that you'll find. Hay, wheat, sugar beets, oats, and barley are also on that list. Researchers here at the University of Minnesota are zeroing in on cereal crops, carrying on a legacy of one alum, whose lifetime of work to feed a hungry world was worthy of a Nobel Peace Prize in 1970. From the foods we eat to what's exported around the world, cereal crops are an important piece of the crop production mix in the U.S. Cereal crops represent about half of the food that we eat in our lives in terms of calories. So when it comes to the bread or the uh, breakfast cereal that you're having, that's all cereals. And walk into the cereal disease lab here at the University of Minnesota, and there's a constant focus on wheat, barley, and oats. We are here chiefly to understand how we can prevent disease for American farmers. So we look at ways that we can introduce new sources of resistance into existing germplasm that farmers are growing. Matthew Moscow says the two biggest disease threats to cereal crops today are rust and fusarium. Both hit yearly. So very often farmers will go out into the field and see small little spots initially forming on their crops. And what those turn out to be are lesions that will eventually form cereal rust which will then erupt and then spread by wind across fields and really can travel thousands of miles. And one of the standard paths is going from Texas all the way up to Minnesota every year. So in order to breed more disease resistant crops, this lab focuses on three areas of study. One, we, we identify new sources of resistance to breed into germplasm that makes its way to plant breeders. The second part, we're studying the pathogen and looking at not only national populations of the disease, but looking at how the pathogen evolves worldwide. And the third part is to identify new approaches that we can breed resistance into our crops, new sources and new approaches that we can use to speed up the process. He says researchers at this lab have already helped identify tens to even hundreds of genes to breed into crops to make them hardier against potential diseases. So we've become really good at identifying those resistances that exist in a lot of land race and wild material that we look at. And we're speeding up that process of discovery that then will make it faster to get to farmers. For diseases that can cost agriculture anywhere between 500 million to a billion dollars a year, the goal is to improve resistance. We're also using new approaches at understanding how the pathogen evolves in the field and really predicting and identifying when new sources may come in from abroad, whether it's by human transport or from the wind. Researchers today are standing on the shoulders of giants who set the stage for some of this work currently being done. One of the biggest, Norman Borlaug, 
also known as the father of the Green Revolution, who received his PhD from here. This was really a seminal period for him to understand the importance of wheat stem rust as a disease, and he brought that with him when he was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation at Simit in Mexico for breeding those crops that just had a substantial impact on the world that led to his Nobel Peace Prize. While these researchers are taking lessons from the past, it's the focus on the future that's a nod to Borlaug's tremendous effort in protecting the food supply, not just in the U.S., but around the globe. Well, that is just a taste of some of the research here. Later, we'll even see more than a century of work on apples that led to the introduction of one of the most beloved apple varieties today. But first, we've talked about renewable diesel and how it could fuel more demand, but should it change the way you think about marketing your crop? Our marketing discussion happens from right here at University of Minnesota next. The Cotton Harvest Tour on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Delta Pine. Dedicated to cotton, committed to you. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report from here at the University of Minnesota. Much more to talk about with our marketing discussion. And Bob, I'll start with you, because when you look at 2023, the biggest pain point from producers has really been input costs. We've seen some fluctuation lately, but as we head into 2024, what does that production cost picture look like? These are numbers from southern Minnesota. I've just been working on them recently, but uh, we're going to see about a 6% decrease from 2023 going into 2024 in terms of cost of production. Uh, I calculated for corn in southern Minnesota, uh, including a family living charge, about $5.05 a bushel. Uh, biggest decreases certainly is in the fertilizer area. Uh, significant decrease there. Also a slight decrease in uh, crop insurance only because of lower coverage levels compared to a year ago. So those are the two components that, that are showing a decrease. We've still got a slight increase in rent projected into that. Um, if we look back, we've got a FinBin database that we use for benchmarking. It's publicly available if you ever want to check out these numbers. Uh, just Google FinBin, you can find it. Uh, if we go back to 2012 and look at what happened with rents following 2013, 2014, we still saw a significant jump in 2013, which would be sort of analogous with 2023. We saw a slight increase again in 2020. In 14. So we expect rent's going to go up a little bit, and part of it's a residual from the great profitability that we had in 2022. And in, the, in Minnesota, we had record profits in, in our farming operations. Well, also looking at 2024, and, you know, we've been talking about renewable diesel and some of these other opportunities that could be coming on the demand side, domestic demand side for soybeans. A lot of hope there. Some of these plants have been a little slow to come online. So what is your thought? Well, <clears throat> When we were at Commodity uh, Classic here last March, uh, I stood up in front of this big group and, and I had a list of 16 new plants that were coming on board, or at least uh, they were either expansions of existing plant or brand new uh, plants, 16 uh, um, coming up, something like three to $4 billion worth of investment all in the next four years out to 2026. Will it all happen? I don't know. It depends on the mandates, depends on the price of oil, uh, depends on the uh, subsidies, the incentives put together by, by policy. But they're on, they're on the board. And in fact, later that morning, I walked out onto the floor and I was pulled aside by someone in the soybean industry, one of the state uh, soybean boards. And he says, Yellowhead, I, I heard you this morning. 
and uh, you're you're wrong. I've heard that before. Uh, and I, t- I, what did I get wrong? He says there aren't 16 plants on the way. There are 23 plants, and it will not increase capacity by 25 percent soy crushing capacity. It'll increase it by 33 percent. Now we don't know if this is all going to happen, and but if it does, my math says we need 10 to 11 million more acres of soybeans. And when I start doing that math, I call I I, I hearken back to the growth of the ethanol industry in the 2000s, and that upset everything yeah. in agriculture. Led to some very good times because corn was demanding more acres, and that meant less wheat, less barley, less other uh, commodities. It's not just soybeans for renewable diesel or corn for sustainable aviation fuel. We're talking about now some of these cover crops potentially that could be used as a source for renewable diesel. Is some of that work going on here at University of Minnesota? It, it is going on. And one of the things that's really interesting is our ability to, you know, what's driving some of this are the renewable fuel standards and, of course, carbon credits and things like that that are out there in the marketplace. So some of the risks that Ed talks about are part of that and those markets developing. And the question is then, these fuels, you know, we think about, we've worked in, I mentioned sustainable aviation fuel is a huge issue. Uh, the airline industries put mandates on or goals on regarding their carbon standards. And some of our crops are, you know, specifically geared towards that marketplace. We are developing new crops, and oftentimes they're perennial crops. So there's going to be this dynamic of how do we take plants and make them, you know, somewhat variable so we can take these different forms of crops into them so we don't get stuck with the one crop, one acreage right. piece that has impacts. All right. Well, we need to take a quick break, and then we will have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. <laughs> Cows seem to have a bad rap by some, and it all goes back to methane. UC Davis researchers say cows and other ruminants only account for 4% of all greenhouse gases produced in the U.S. But researchers here at the University of Minnesota may have found a way to cut those emissions by up to half. And the secret to change just may be in what the cows eat. From cow burps to cow manure is the great debate, just how much methane comes from cows. Well, dairy cows play a, a, a big role. There's almost 9 million dairy cows in, in the United States, so certainly we can help reduce the methane emissions if we work with all of the cows in the U.S. While the researchers here are not answering how much methane dairy cows emit, they're tackling another burning question. One of the questions we're trying to answer is, can we reduce methane emissions in dairy cows? And the answer? just maybe in what the cows eat. We're working with feeding some red seaweed to help uh, reduce methane emissions in dairy cows. Brad Hines, professor of dairy production systems at the University of Minnesota, says the seaweed they've found to be the most effective is red seaweed found on the coast of Hawaii. We're feeding it to cows uh, to reduce uh, methane emissions and we hope to see uh, at least a 40 to 50 percent reduction in methane of dairy cows. Heinz says the early results are promising. There's maybe some indication that it's uh, it's working. It's uh, helping to reduce the methane emissions. We're not quite sure on the, the numbers yet, but the project is still ongoing. He says the methane amount not only varies by time of day, but also the types of cows. One thing that we've learned is that methane is, is quite variable in cows. You know, cows fluctuate uh, low in the morning, higher in the evening. It's really based on feeding times. 
And we're also finding that there's maybe some differences in dairy cow breeds when it comes to methane emissions. But in his research, he's found by feeding a very small amount of red seaweed, it can help reduce the methane emissions by up to half. Just normal feed, maybe it's less than an ounce per cow per day. So a very small amount that we're feeding to cows. He says currently the team is working with dairy producers across the state. We're working with uh, farmers in many different aspects uh, with uh, their, their grazing plans, how to feed their cows more efficiently. We're working with them on environmentally sustainable goals to help improve dairy production in, in Minnesota. Well, PFOS made some rumblings within the dairy industry, especially at One New Mexico Dairy. PFOS and sludge, that's the topic of customer support next. PFOS and sludge. John's tackling both of those topics in customer support this week. Two comments this morning from Maine viewers from whom I need addresses about municipal sludge. Sludge and sewage contain PFAS, and the state of Maine has banned using it since 2022. I disagree with the report John made Sunday morning. That's from Eric Edmondson. I'm curious why John did not mention PFAS in his recent discussion on using waste treatment sludge as fertilizer. Its use has become a disaster here in Maine. That's from Rick Blees. Now, it's not a coincidence that two viewers from Maine responded. Maine has one of the only and strictest limits on chemicals called PFAS in the country and also previously encouraged the use of municipal sludge. Very few states have any regulations at all. The EPA continues to study the situation, but has not defined a PFAS contamination limit, an MCL. PFAS contained carbon fluorine chains and were widely used in consumer and industrial products, largely due to water repellent qualities. They became categorized as forever chemicals, which strikes me as kind of meaningless since water and granite are forever chemicals if you stop and think about it. There are over 4,000 man-made forever chemicals. We don't know how PFAS enter the food chain. For example, soil treated with sludge containing PFAS grows contaminated lettuce, but not potatoes. Corn stalks may contain PFAS, but not the kernels. Despite considerable alarm from Maine farmers, the handful of which I read about were organic producers, there is no consensus on how harmful these substance levels are. It seems that the closer to the consumer, the greater the possibility of pieces, PFAS being passed from sludge, which complicates growers who consider this a benefit, organic. Not all municipal sludge contains significant PFAS contamination. In fact, here's what the EPA says we don't know how to detect PFAS, how much exposure people are experiencing, how we are exposed, how harmful they are, how to remove them from water, and how to dispose of them. The landfills and incinerators that I showed a couple weeks ago may actually be worse than spreading the sludge on farmland. PFAS are rapidly being phased out by the industry. There are farm operations ruined by PFAS, of course, due to the inability to meet organic standards, but no evidence to date of a pervasive threat to people or land. 
The debate will undoubtedly intensify as more research is conducted. Thanks, John. Well, coming up, if Honeycrisp is your favorite apple, you have the University of Minnesota to think. We're uncovering the apple breeding program that's more than a century old here at the University of Minnesota next. Well, fall is prime time for pumpkins and apples. And it may not look like fall right now, but researchers here at the University of Minnesota's quest to find the next best apple variety, it never stops. And we have that work to thank for a very popular apple variety today. Delightful apples that are both appealing and delicious. That's exactly what you'll find at the University of Minnesota this time of year. Our whole goal in all of this is to give the consumer uh, an exceptional eating experience. Not an okay eating experience, not even a maybe okay eating experience, but there better be some wow in it somewhere. It's a product of more than 115 years of work and research. When the uh, program first began back, actually began even back in the 1800s, uh, it was all in response to the fact that our winters are so severe that apples could not be grown here. But in the late 1800s, growers demanded change. A group of would-be apple farmers uh, went to the state legislature, asked to have funding for a program for the University of Minnesota, and that's when we were born. In the 115 years since, the end game is no longer just survival, but now it's also taste. It didn't matter how good the apple was, how pretty it was, how big it was. If it wouldn't survive the winters, it didn't count. That has not gone away, but our genetics have evolved to the point uh, that we don't have to worry about it every single cross. We've really broken through, I think, in the world of what texture can be in apples. One of the most famous apple varieties born out of this research here is one that is known around the globe. The one that probably moved us uh, to the forefront uh, locally, nationally, and internationally was Honeycrisp. And that really broke new ground. We introduced that in 1991. Bedford says the Honeycrisp apple took 31 years to create. That's from breeding until they introduced it commercially. But then it took decades longer to take the apple industry by storm. Honeycrisp, which we might think of as a fairly recent variety, it is 61 years old now. So uh, when you put that in perspective, you realize that apple breeding is a marathon. It's, it's not a sprint. So what makes the Honeycrisp so unique? Well, the name says it all. When you bite into an apple like a Honeycrisp, it cracks in your mouth. The juice flows. You almost need to hang over a sink or something, maybe have a towel nearby. Uh, it's an explosion in your mouth. And that now has set the bar for that term, at least for us. At any given time, the apple breeding program here at the University of Minnesota has 20,000 to 25,000 apple trees in various stages of evaluation from a breeding program that's quite robust. We produce about four to 5,000 new trees a year. And uh, each one of those trees comes from a specific cross that we have these goals for. Bedford says it's all about producing the best apples possible. The team taps into conventional breeding, choosing a tree to designate as the female tree. It's a matter of sexual reproduction. And before the flowers open, we'll choose limbs on that female tree that we're going to use. Before those flowers open in the spring, we'll cover those with a paper bag. 
And the reason for that is that when those flowers open, we want to make sure that the bees don't visit them. Once the flowers open up inside the bag, the team then takes pollen from the tree they've designated as the male parent and dabs it onto the female flowers. And if all goes well, those flowers that we fertilized will uh, fertilize the ovary and that will become apples inside there. Those seeds will have uh, characteristics from each parent, just like our children have characteristics from us. Decades of work and more taste tests than even Bedford can count. It's one in 10,000 trees that make it through. Uh, in order to get to that one in 10,000 trees, we have to taste thousands of bad apples to get there. And in fact, every day when we're at the peak of the season, we have to taste about 500 apples a day. Now that probably sounds like fun to some people, but let me tell you, after the first 100, it's not fun. And in fact, most of them are not very good. But in the end, the goal is to create an unforgettable experience and to make sure there truly are no bad apples in the bunch. I have to admit, our family is definitely fans of the Honeycrisp, and I have a whole new appreciation for all apple varieties after that. Well, that does it for this weekend's U.S. Farm Report Beck's College Roadshow from the University of Minnesota. We will wrap up our College Roadshow next week as we jet off to the University of Illinois. Thanks for watching this weekend, and we hope that you tune in next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.